Hello, I'm Annie Coops and this is the Leadership Quest podcast, where I seek out conversations with people who have an interesting perspective on leaders and leadership. So much has changed since these were recorded, but they're still brilliant insights. So if you want to think about leadership in these extraordinary times, they will be just right for you. In the meanwhile, be safe and stay well. Welcome to the final Leadership Quest podcast. That's final, at least for now. In this podcast, I have the great privilege of speaking with John Walsh, who is quite simply one of the kindest people that I know. I love his take on the world and the interventions that he makes in his leadership journey. I hope you enjoy getting to know John as much as I enjoyed listening to his stories. Good morning, John. Good morning, Anne. Um, It's lovely to be here with you. Um, Both sat in West Yorkshire today, aren't we? We're both sat, and we're not that many miles away from each other, I would imagine, as the crow flies. That's about right, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's obviously great to see you, Anne. Thank you again for the invite to come on and have a conversation about leadership and life and work. So tell us, John, a little bit about, you're John Walsh. Um, Tell us a little bit about you and where are you today? Where are you sitting today? Well, um, I'm in Bradford where I live. Um, So I'm in my, in upstairs in a little study I've got. Um, I've been working here more or less all the time since COVID happened. Um, And Bradford is my home. I was born near York, but I've lived most of my life in Bradford and I've worked all of my life in Leeds. So I'm a, a citizen of two cities, really, one for work and one for life. Tell me a little bit about how you got to where you are today um, in your work context. I know a little bit about your background, but I'd like people to hear your story. Okay, so maybe the best place to start would be 1994, and I was doing some postgraduate studies at Leeds University, and I was working in sales, telesales in Bradford, um, which was actually, looking back on it, one of the happiest jobs um, I've had in terms of team morale and laughter. I mean, I'm not sure I saw very much, but certainly in terms of team morale and laughter, it was a great place to work. I wonder if the phone went to a friend of mine who was working in a hostel in Leeds, rang me up and said, um, a colleague's going on sabbatical for nine months. Would you be interested in, in having their role for nine months? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds great. So he arranged an interview with the manager, and I went for this interview with the manager, and he was a really nice guy, and he interviewed me for 20 minutes and said, yeah, that's great, can you come in next week to start some shifts? Um, obviously, I look back now and I'm thinking, um, there was no references, I don't know if there's any security checks for anything, you know. So anyway, I said, yeah, that's great. And I walked outside, Anne, and I thought, great, I've got this new, new role for nine months. And suddenly, anxiety just hit me. And I thought, what have I just agreed to do? I thought, I've just agreed to come work in a hostel with people with mental health problems, who are homeless, who've got alcohol problems. And I thought, I've agreed to do this. And I'm, I'm totally out of my depth here. And I thought, what have I done? And then suddenly, I thought what Mark had said, the manager, he said to me, I'll ring you next week and offer you some shifts. And I thought, ah, I know what I'll do. I'll just really politely turn him down when he rings up and says, I can't, I can't do it. And suddenly the anxiety just flew away and I, I was fine. About a week later, the phone went and it was Mark. And Mark said, can you come in, John, for some shifts tomorrow? And I said, yes, I can. And I, I and then we said, OK, thank you. And I put the phone down. And I don't know from this day to that why I said yes. Maybe I was having a bad day. Maybe work wasn't doing too well. I wasn't selling much. But I said yes. And I put the phone down and I thought, why have I done this? What have I done? 
And I just thought I couldn't get out of it. Um, and I probably didn't have enough confidence then to ring him back and say, I can't do it. And the way I'm wired, I thought, I can't not turn up. I have to do it. So I don't think I slept much that night. And I got on the bus to Leeds and I went, it was just awful. It was like, I mean, I've never been to prison, but it was like, I mean, it was like a journey to, to prison like the Shawshank Redemption without any redemption <laughs> so I got there and I met this lovely team and I met these people who were living there and I the first few days were just like acclimatization meeting people and I, and I found I could do it and I stayed there nine months and I didn't want to leave and I suppose there's something there about how we have to sometimes not let fear stop us doing stuff and somehow find a way through and towards the end of it I remember getting the the local paper the Yorkshire Evening Post every Thursday looking for work and one day I got it and it was literally like there's an advert in one of the corners of the paper for a primary healthcare team for the homeless that had just been set up and they were looking for support workers. And this advert literally lit up. Now, I'm sure it didn't. I'm sure it was in my mind rather than on the page. And I thought, oh, so I, had, I applied for the job and I got this job as one of the support workers, the client support worker, working with people who were homeless in Leeds. And then I joined that team on January the 16th, 1995. And it's really interesting. I don't remember dates that well, but I do remember these dates. Um, and I joined the team and we, were, we formed that team and we, we worked to develop um, a primary healthcare team. It also became a primary healthcare team for people in the asylum system as well. And we started to support other inclusion work with gypsy traveller people and also people who were involved in sex work in the city. Um, but yeah, so, that's, so that was my entry really, was the phone call, my fear, somehow saying yes when I planned to say no, and then actually somehow finding some courage from somewhere to actually maybe just take that step, and then finding this lovely team and work I could do and actually I wanted to do. It's really interesting, isn't it, how it was all serendipity really. So, so tell me about what you were doing in that team, what was it like, what type of work were you doing then? So when we arrived, the team really hadn't formed um, and we basically created the work, I think, I think from scratch. And I remember one of the first things that happened was there was a, it was a very small team to start with. It did grow. So there was a mental health nurse, a practice nurse, a doctor and um, a receptionist, secretary, receptionist and a secretary and myself and another support worker. So there's about seven of us. Um, and I remember when I first started, seen patients I can't manage and I said well who, who's the manager then he said I don't know so we all sort of like self-managed for a bit actually um but I remember one of the early experiences I did have was that um yeah, I used to go in every day and because there was no direct line management I used to think well what do I do and above there was a day centre a homeless day centre and I thought I'm going to go up here so after a few days in, in the base I just started going up every day and just getting a cup of coffee with a little cafe attached to it and it was doing great work and I, I introduced myself to the staff and I just sort of sit there um drinking coffee now some people would say that's the story of my life really sat somewhere <laughs> drinking a coffee but I used to sit there and people used to come up to us and started to come up with us and within a couple of months I was working with about 80 different people who were homeless and right. I remember a year or two afterwards somebody I was working with telling me this tale and they said oh it was really strange I was there when you turned up and it was like January so it's quite wintry time they said you came in you were in like a, a long blue coat and some people came up to you straight away and started talking and working with you some of, some of us actually held back a bit because we weren't sure who you were and, and various rumours went round who you were some people thought you were a psychiatrist um, some people thought you were the undercover police um, and and I think one person thought I was an undertaker. So in the court. So um, but I, I sort of sat there listening to stories, trying to help people, say, Mike, can we help you with benefits, housing, access to services? 
in those days as well, what I discovered very quickly was there was no relationships between parts of the system. Um, the system wasn't really joined up. So housing and health were absolutely separate entities. So one of the early pieces of work I think I did was make contact with managers from housing. And we used to sort of meet and talk and go for coffee. And it was great to understand their world and, and know them. And we very quickly, we set up a relationship where I would take people up and they would say, right, you know, nobody's leaving them here. We'll get them a hostel place tonight. And they would ring me up three weeks later and say, we're really worried about somebody who's in at the moment. We're really worried about their mental health. And I'd say, don't worry, we'll get a GP appointment today or we'll get the mental health nurse to see them today. We'll get them in as soon as possible. Don't worry. And we found a really good relationship, I think, of but that was based, actually, I think, kind of reaching out and meeting often in neutral places like coffee bars and just talking and getting to know each other and asking, what can we do to help you do your stuff? There was like a, a, lot, a lot of reciprocity, maybe, just flowing there, backwards and forwards. So I think that was some early experiences was, and perhaps it shaped a lot of the things I've tried to do, really, and which is reaching out to where people are rather than expecting people to come to us and also seeing where some of those gaps are and discovering that relationships can heal those gaps. And often our organisational attempts at organisational Jenga or strategy meetings don't always meet those needs, but the human contact and human encounters sometimes do. I can remember, um, I mean, we can talk about how I got to know you and what happened, um, um, but also I remember um, being um, very impressed by how at ease you were in uh, very difficult environments so I remember um, I remember being sort of walking through Leeds with you to do something and how at ease you were with people that I didn't understand so people who were homeless people who had walked past many 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 times and your ease with people and how kind you were unreservedly with those people so I think for me that's also part of your journey how you learned to understand where they were coming from um, so I remember meeting you. I can remember that I, I was told that I should meet this guy called John Walsh and that um, he ran the uh, was part of the health um, service for the for the people who had no home um, in Leeds. Um, and that's how we met. And we also um, usefully deployed our social media presence, didn't we, John, at the time? Can you remember what happened? I can remember, I, I think the link was that I'd met a good friend of ours, Maxine Craig, by then. And I met Maxine, at a, I spoke at a conference, an OD conference. A good colleague had asked me to speak at this OD conference with him, and I, and, and I did. And Maxine was there, and we met over a cup of coffee, and we kept in touch, and um, we started to sort of write blogs together. And I wasn't on Twitter then or social media, but I, I used to look and I used to see comments. And I think um, I think you'd asked about, is John on Twitter? And I think Maxine said no. And then I think I'd emailed you or you emailed me. I think you were then at NHS England, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. And we, we, we met for coffee. <clears throat> and I remember because a number of people had said to me, oh, you need to go on social media, you need to go on Twitter. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had no real intention to do it, but people kept saying it. And you were the person who sort of like catalyzed critical mass, really. You were the person who sort of tipped me over the edge. And I remember the, the conversation, I was thinking about it last night, actually. We had this conversation of a coffee and you were saying, "Yo, you need to be on social media, you need to be on Twitter. And I was saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. And for some reason, I, I don't know what you did, Anne, you did something, some sort of Jedi mind trick, because I ended up saying, 
I'll do it this weekend, Dan. I'll do it this weekend. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a good coaching conversation from you, but I agreed to do it that weekend. And I remember we met on a Thursday or a Friday, I think it was a Thursday, and the weekend came and Saturday came and I thought, and then Sunday was looming. And we're back actually to the story about the way I'm wired. I thought, I've promised this person I'll, I'll, go, I'll go on Twitter by Sunday. And I thought, well, I've got two options here. Either I do it or I just basically dodge jam for the rest of my life. So I thought, well, no, I've, I've got to do it. So... I did it and I didn't know what I was doing. And you you also gave me some really good advice about, about finding your own way and just reaching out and just, you know, seeing what people were saying and liking things. And then I sort of got into it. And what a, a blessing it's been, really, because it's been, and you obviously were fundamentally introduced me to that world and the power of that world. Um, and meeting people I never would have met and work that came from that and connections that came from that and great relationships that came from that. So... You were somebody who really sort of lit the fire there in a, in a sort of non arson way. Um, and you really did tip me over. And I think without you, because people have said to me before, so seeds have been planted, but you were the person who'd really sort of just, and I don't know what you did because I remember saying, right, by weekend I'll go on. And I, and I did. And then there was a period of weeks where I just wasn't sure what was going on. But I'm pleased I stuck with it. And so I'm, I'm sort of grateful to you. So you, you are responsible for whatever I've done or not done. I'm pleased to say that I was responsible because I think it's exposed John Walsh to a bigger world. However, I suspect it was just a matter of timing, really. So, so there you go. So, so John, um, then from my perspective, you emerged into this um, much more visible world. You were already in, in this world and, and all your work became much more visible, I think, to many more people. Um, so, so what has it been like? Um, you've gone through that system you've gone from being a care assistant through to being a, a manager do you want to tell people about where you are today and the type of work that you do now yeah so, so in the homeless I mean I was 22 years in the homeless primary care team at York Street and um, two-thirds of that time was on the street working with people who were homeless the last third I was managing the service and it was all under uh, the organization of Leeds Community Healthcare and I moved to a different role um, a couple of years ago. So I do um, two basic things, really. One is organisational development, systems leadership uh, work. And the other one is what's called the Freedom to Speak Up Guardian for the Trust. So for the 3,000 staff colleagues at Leeds Community Healthcare, I'm the Freedom to Speak Up Guardian. So um, you are in what people would traditionally call a leadership role. Um, But what does leadership mean to you? Right, that's a great question, Anne. Um, I think two thoughts come to mind. I think I'm convinced that we've probably made a mistake in completing management and leadership. And a sort of simple explanation to me is that management's about processes and systems and running systems and processes, which are really important and key. But leadership's about people and how we work with people and how we listen and help people see and grow. So I would say a leader is somebody who helps somebody to see and grow. And I think a big influence on me was hearing Rob Webster talk about leadership from every seat. And I remember it really resonated with me, this idea that leadership from every seat should be that everyone can make a difference. Everyone can stand with the person next to them and support them and help them to see and grow. And I think that, you know, that still stays with me. And I still talk about leadership from every seat in the sense that wherever we are, we can engage with people, inspire people, support people, stand in solidarity with people. 
Um, and it's particularly, I think, important now as we see the effects of COVID on BAME people, BAME communities and our staff who are BAME colleagues as well, that sort of sense of solidarity and standing. So I, I don't see leadership as a, a positional thing, although it is, and I don't see it as a management thing, but I do see it as a people thing. I think it's how we are with people makes us leaders. And that is the the, the, the barometer, I think. That's really interesting. So different people who I've spoken to differentiate leadership differently. I don't think anybody's sort of delineated it in the way that you have so far around people. So that's really interesting. How then um, can we encourage people to grow and evolve to be good at that people stuff that you're talking about? What happened to you? I think one major thing for me was and it's probably another example, it's probably a parallel to what happened with, with, with you with Twitter, was that people for years had said lovely things about me. And if I'm honest, I never accepted them. I always batted them back. And I think part of that is my own sort of childhood and upbringing. I was brought up in a very, very loving family. And our family had a very big focus really on, or focus against things like pride and ego and grandiosity and boasting and showing off and... Um, probably, I mean, my mother and father were both who both passed on. They're both lovely people, you know, and but they're humble people as well. And I think there's something beautiful about humility and something we need to rediscover. I think in our services and leadership as well. Um, and I think I think I probably that got a bit off unbalanced with me, and it was almost became a point where I couldn't see any gifts I had. And people would say lovely things, and I would feel good about it, but I would immediately say, "On oh, so are you, Anne." Oh, that's you, Anne. Yeah, but even more so, you, Anne. So I'd immediately bat it back. And I think the person in this case with the big catalyst for me was Yvonne Coggill. And I remember Yvonne came to the homeless centre when she worked at NHS England. And I did a little bit of a talk, not about what we did, but actually, well, what, what we did, but also how we try to do it in terms of hope and humanity and relationship and relational ways of working. And Yvonne afterwards said to me, can I come and spend a day with you? And I said, of course you can, Yvonne. And Yvonne came out, he went on the streets and met people, went to the asylum centre. Uh, and I think it was a massive impact on Yvonne, the visit was. And I became friends with Yvonne. And when Yvonne was in Leeds, we'd sometimes meet for coffee and for lunch. And I remember once we went for dinner and she said to me, you don't know your gifts, do you? You don't know the impact you have on people. And I said, of course I do, Yvonne, of course I do. And she said, no, 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 I don't think you do. I don't think you do. And I said, oh, no, no, Yvonne, I absolutely do. No, no, she said, no, because every time I say something to you positive, you bat it back to me. You're not owning your own potency, really, or gifts or potential. And I said, no, 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 Yvonne, no, I do, I do, I do. And I went home that night and thought, no, she's right. She's right, actually. And there was something shifted in me and I started to not bat bat, but try to hold and own what people were saying. Um, and actually, as I owned it, I, um, I I saw it more. And I think as I saw it more, I was able to work with it and release it more. Um, and I think there was the, 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 the description I've used of this when people have asked me is, I think Yvonne held up a mirror to me about what she was seeing that I couldn't see. And I think we all sometimes need people to hold up mirrors because I think we don't always see the great gifts and potential and offer that we all have. Um, so there's something about we need people in our lives to hold up mirrors. And I think we need to hold up mirrors to people as well to see all their their possibility and their gifts and what they can, can bring in terms of contribution and care. So I think there's something about leadership about this, this hall of mirrors, really, where we're all holding up mirrors so we can see what's there. And actually, it's interesting for me, I couldn't see, and it took somebody to 
have the conversation and something went in me and then I started to very tentatively and stumblingly, if if such a word, hold and and see and release my own gifts and I think hopefully actualise more and more of my potential. Um, I also had a manager who pushed me for a number of years to go on a leadership course and I kept saying, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, I'm too busy. And eventually I did it. And again, that that was a big part of unfolding for me as I started to put some of these pieces together. And I think also we started to use theory, which I think we hadn't used for years and years. And we discovered there were so many theoretical frameworks out there that actually were exactly the things we were doing. So we were, in a sense, doing these things, but there were theories that actually established and and framed these experiences we were trying to create in the centre. So I think there was a number of things that came together. So I think the idea of evolution and growth and unfolding are really, really sort of key. And I suppose one of the things we sometimes do in mentoring with people is around the fact that we we all have these seeds and they all can actualise and blossom and grow. But we need the soil, we need the elements, we need the rain and and the sun and the wind to help us grow. And I think I have... Fortunately, those external people who had the courage to say to me, I think there's more, I think there's stuff you're not seeing. And somehow I I entered into that dialogue and into that space. And I think growth happened as a result of of that, really. That's that's a lovely story. And and I really like the idea that... um, in order to help people to grow as as leaders or or indeed as people, I guess, holding up a mirror in a sensitive and humble way, as because Yvonne's very humble actually, is is a very lovely thing and talented thing to be able to do. And we should all practice doing that perhaps a little bit more. Um, so tell me a little bit more about I think um so as you know I'm part of an ambulance trust um, and we have our own freedom to speak up guardian so I've got a view about the role um is that a leadership role and how does that play out for you that's a really good question um and I would say it is a leadership role um because it works if you have a definition of leadership that sees it as working with people and how we work with people, then that role can, by its nature, really deeply work with people. So in the work that I do as a Freedom to Speak Up Guardian, when people contact me, the first thing is actually not even the concern, it's them. How are they? Because usually by the time they've got to me, it's quite broken. People are quite... Um, often not in a good place so my first role is the concerns obviously really important actually they're more important that person sat in front of me or online or on a phone is the person I really need to listen to so the first thing we do is make the offer of a pastoral package of support for that person whatever it might be so whether it's meetings coffee meetings talks on the phone texts um so one thing I build in in the work is because sometimes it takes a while for a concern to be looked at is I do well-being checks with people. Like last night, I was just sending emails to people saying, I hope you're keeping all right, keeping well, have a good weekend, hope to see you soon. And they're just little ways just to sort of check in on people who are struggling. And the other thing I think, which I think relates to leadership is, and it, it, it struck me the last probably two years of doing, well, I've done the, I've done the role for, I think, I think it's four years this December. Um, but I've, I've really sort of tried to heighten this in the last couple of years is this is about safely speaking up, not just speaking up, because I don't want somebody to meet me and walk away and their anxiety's got even worse and their trepidation's got worse, if anything. So it's about exploring what safe speaking up means for them and what's the best way for them, to, for their voice to be heard. 
and it may often not be their name to be heard, but their voice to be heard. So I, I, I believe that speaking up guardians can become really important conduits for leadership in the organisation. And we should be modelling, embodying and expressing what this works about, which is to say that every voice in our organisation counts, that we will only be good organisations when we both hear and understand what our staff are saying and we understand their stories. And we have, as organisations, the ability and the courage to hold this stuff and also create positive change where we can. So to me, it's fundamental and it, and it links to so many other aspects like OD and service improvement and culture and retention and recruitment and staff sickness and all these other areas that organisations worry so much about. So to me, being a guardian is about being a good human being and trying to be a good human being who's there for others. And I think that's that to me is leadership, really. It is. Um, How is that received in the organisation? I don't, and you don't need to talk about I, I, what I'm trying to get to really is um, that in a role like that, um, sometimes I guess it's quite tricky um, with other managers in particular. And, and how does it feel sometimes? What's that journey been like? So the four years, I think we've seen a really good journey. Um, and I can say hand on heart, the organisation's got very good at just holding this stuff and not being defensive and listening to this stuff. And I think it's it's very hard for managers sometimes because it goes straight from me to the chief executive and it goes probably to a director, a senior manager and comes. And I think I think part of the work has been working with managers. And we've always said that this work isn't about, you know, we don't want it to be, we want it to be name resolve issues, absolutely. But it's never really about which hunting anybody. It's about trying to understand what's happening. And I've been involved, some of the recent cases I've been involved in, it's interesting where I've re- tried my best to represent the voice of the staff member and I, and. There's, there's a tension there because you have to be independent and impartial as well as making sure that person is fully supported and fully understood. But part of the conversation I've been involved with managers is about how we support other people in the equation because we don't want, you know, whoever is involved in this and wherever the weight or responsibility or issues lie, there's human beings in the middle of this and how we support people with what the issues are really and trying to look at resolution and support for people. So I think that's, I think there's some work here around the, all organisations growing to do this work because it's very different probably from lots of stuff we've done really and I've seen managers as well some of the best managers I work with now I think when I first started didn't know what it was and I was in I was in another part of the service because I was still in the homeless centre which was part of specialist I was working across the organisation and managers were always nice but it was like hmm Right, okay. They didn't know the role and I didn't either when we started. So I think together we've tried to grow it and we've tried to work. And I've seen some incredible stuff from managers. I mean, I was talking to a manager yesterday who said, you know, Summer, I welcome what you when you when I get your email, I think, oh, this is good because this is actually learning and we, where we need to change. Um, I know some other managers have really, really struggled. I remember a manager saying to me, your emails hurt me. And I said, well, it hurts me to send the emails as well. You know, I don't get any pleasure at sending the emails, but we have to listen to those voices. And I know, because I know this manager, that you're a good manager trying your best. And I know, but also it's about your voice being part of this discussion as well. Yeah. So I think there's the it's 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 tough work. And I think I mean I'm very blessed and fortunate to be in an organization that gives me tremendous support around this at all levels. Um and even then it can be lonely, difficult work because you're dealing with human pain and you're dealing with people who are struggling and you're dealing with competing narratives in a sense of, of what's happened in a service. 
Um, and I'm not saying we get it right all the time, but I think the organisation has grown to really be able to work with this stuff really, really well and actually resolve a lot of stuff and help a lot of people. It, it is difficult work. Um, how then do you look after yourself, John, in amongst all of this? Um, I think there's something about self-care probably. The, the one lesson I've learned about self-care, I think, is, and it comes from an Arab, Arab proverb that says, stay close to what makes you happy to be alive. And I think it's a really important, that was a really important saying for me when I discovered it, because there's two things there. We have to know what makes us happy to be alive. And then we have to make sure it turns up in our life. And we have to make sure that other things don't get in the way and take it away. Um, so I have a sense of what makes me happy to be alive. And it's often it's simple things like reading and, you know, watching videos or you know about about things that interest me and connection with you know good people like yourself and and actually sometimes the work itself is energizing I think sometimes we have this idea that how do we keep okay during difficult work but actually difficult work itself by its nature can be energizing because there's something where I feel very honored to when somebody who doesn't know me sits in front of me or speaks to me and shares their story with me. And I'm, all, I'm often in order of that person because that person has taken a courageous step. And there's a sacred trust there about that person's story, which I treat very, very seriously. Um, so there's an energising part to the work of working with people, particularly where you see people have their voice heard and you see real change happen and you see people saying, yeah, right, okay, we, we haven't got this right, but let's, let's learn from this and try to embed lessons. So I think the job itself is incredibly rewarding as well as challenging. And I think having that sense of what makes, and it, it, there's nothing really um, exotic that I do, I don't think, but there are simple things that I, I try to make sure in my life on a daily basis. And I know if they're there, um, that, 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 refuels and regenerates me in a sense I think so I've got I don't have a, a massive plan around self-care but I do have I've got some sense of what makes me okay and I do make sure that stuff does turn up regularly. One of the things that's always struck me about you John is is how generous you are and I think it's you, you are really really generous in terms of yourself um, but it's interesting to hear that you get feedback that enables you to carry on giving, which I think is what you're describing. Um, so, so that's really interesting. So we're in the middle of, um, well, we're, we're towards the end of 2020 and um, we're both at home again working. And you said earlier on that a lot of your work is about connectedness, actually. And, you know, your story um, from when you very first started working in care was about you stitching up the gaps between people and systems through yourself, really, through people and communication. And your story about sitting in the cafe was about people and communication and being present. What's that like now when you can't get out there on the streets, in the rooms, with other people? How are you managing that? Well, I think a big discovery during COVID for me, Anne, has been that if you'd have asked me before in COVID, before COVID, I would have sworn there's no way you can do the work I do without it being face-to-face. -face. It's just not possible. And I've actually discovered, obviously, there's something very special about face-to-face -face meetings, which can't be replicated. But I've discovered a lot of the work can be done online and by phone and I'm, an incredible connectedness. And I'd even say I can't notice, and I could be wrong, but I can't notice any lack of connectedness, even though the connectedness is virtual or by, or by telephone with people who reach out to me. Um, it's the same sort of um, value or impact, I think. Um, 
So this, it, it convinces me maybe that it's more about how we are in the relationship and the encounter rather than the medium. And I would never deny the the, the primacy of face-to-face, but it's perhaps more of how we are and how we turn up in those meetings. And do we have that acceptance, that empathy, that listening, that regard for others, that congruence, that reality ourselves being real? Um, so I think if we can create those things, we will create those experiences where people feel included, valued and listened to, regardless of what the medium is. And I think maybe I've been guilty in the past of focusing too much on the medium. So I've travelled miles and miles to see a staff member who wanted to be seen, and absolutely, and I'll still do it. But actually, it's the experience we had when we met that was really, really mattered. The medium was a, a good thing, but it was actually a secondary thing. That's really interesting. I, I do wonder about... Um, so I don't know whether you've looked at any of the work that's going on currently about digital inclusion and what your views are about whether actually um, we are marginalising the most disadvantaged, the people that you used to work with in many ways, I would think, um, in this shift to the digital medium. How do you feel about that? Have you got a view about that? I think it's a really good call because one of the lessons I think of COVID is there are, there are several. Um, and the one of them clearly is the great value of, online, virtual, digital work. Another one, of course, is health inequalities and social inclusion. Um, as we see poor areas um, massive, massively impacted by COVID and by all those awful health inequalities and social inequalities as well. So it's how we both support the digital revolution in a sense and, and online work and virtual work, et cetera, there's many strengths, but also we need to think that there are, there are groups of people who either don't have apps, don't have IT, they have poor Wi-Fi connection. And how do we work with those people? And actually, there's something about we know that the best work with those people, and in fact, with all people, is the human work. So we must make sure, I think, that the digital doesn't replace the human. So there's something to me about the best way to work with human beings is to be a human being with them. And I think we should use digital technology to the max, but we also need to think about those groups who are marginalised and how we best engage with them. And, and some of those groups will have access to digital technology. When I was in the, the homeless primary care team, we did some work around um, getting uh, tablets for some of our partner agencies in the third sector so they could go out and register people and look up sort of um, uh, information on the NHS websites about you know conditions etc and help people um, so I'm, I think it's a great thing and I think the pandemic has pushed us into this world and I hope we stay here but there's always this I think, focus on me about the human engagement and the human relationship. So, so um, some manager at some point in your career then advised you that you should do a leadership development program so and you think, I think you said that that sort of was fundamental as well to your shift of mindset. How then would you think that we can best help people to develop as leaders? Um, how we best develop as leaders? Um, I think if I take my own story, um, I think the lessons it would say to me is there's something about, and it's if, I think this is something which goes back to the sort of start of civilization. So if you look at ancient literature, like the book of Genesis is interesting because it talks about the fall of human beings. And the idea is that people become disconnected from the world, from creation, from nature, from each other and from themselves. 
And to me, leadership is how we somehow reconnect with ourselves, with each other and with the wider world. And certainly some cultures, some Eastern cultures have that, you know, very, very strong, really, that connectedness between perhaps the system, the service and the self. So there's something about that this has to be about discovering things in me and seeing things in me and releasing those things and finding ways for those things to actualize. And it's also how I connect with others and how I listen to understand rather than to respond and how I start to hear and tell and create stories with others. And there's something about that bigger picture, which, you know, Twitter is great because it brings you so many angles of the of the world right to, right to your timeline. So there's something about that bigger picture and how that bigger picture we are part of and it affects all we do. So I think there's something about how we travel up and down that sort of self um others and and sort of universe cosmos sort of um dimensions um, and we'll let those things form us and it has to be all three so perhaps it's a bit of a circle rather than a, a ladder or a lift there's something about how these things so i think there's something about connecting with who we are and I remember actually another another interesting part of my own development was the late aiden halligan so aiden was a, a great guy who did tremendous work um with homelessness and, and other work uh, and Aidan sadly died a number of years ago in his 50s. And I remember the last time I saw Aidan was in Leeds. And he sat with us in a, a cafe in Leeds drinking coffee and, and we, we chatted away. And he said, tell me your story. And, and I told him a little bit of what I've told you, man. And he said, ah, I know what's happened here. He said, you've started to find yourself. You've discovered yourself. And he went on to say, he said, and I know, I'll be honest with you, I know some people who haven't done that yet. And they may be in, in quite leading positions of power even, but they haven't done that sort of self-discovery journey. And I mean, I hadn't thought of it as that really. And I thought, yeah, it's true, actually. There's something about how do I discover who I am and how do I, how can, how, how can I be me and how can we create cultures where you, I can be I can be me and you can be you and we can celebrate that diversity and difference. And that's one of the things our trust is doing around diversity. We have a, we have a campaign called I Can Be Me. So whoever you are, we welcome you and we, we welcome you as you are. Um, I want to create spaces where you can authentically be yourself at work. So, But there's something about that for me around how do we um, discover who we are. And I think that's the key probably to discovering who, 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 who others are and how the world is. I remember hearing a story from an American training program, which years ago now, but it really struck with me. And the story is a very simple one, but the story was a man one evening in, in, in America is sat, what, he sits down, has his, bowl of pretzels, has his beer next to him, he's about to watch football, and his young child comes in and says, Daddy, 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 will you play with me? And the man thinks, oh, no, I want to watch football, it's starting soon. So, and then he has an idea, and he takes a magazine that he's got, and the magazine has got a, a, a picture of the globe, of the world, a map of the world. And the man tears it into a number of different pieces, many pieces, and gives it to the little boy and says, go in the kitchen and put the world together. You know, you put anything's great, it'll, it'll take him hours to do that. So the man sits down, opens his can of beer, starts eating his crisps, starts watching the game. The boy comes back within about sort of like, I don't know, 10, 12 minutes or something. And and he solved it. And the man says, how have you done that? And he's thinking, my, I've got a project. My son must be some sort of genius who can do this. And the story is, is that the little boy said, oh, no, no, what, what happened was I discovered there was a picture of a boy on the other end. And when I put the boy together, the world came together. And when I, when I heard that, I thought, yeah, a lot of this is I need to come together in order to understand the world and engage with it best. So I think this is about how I can be the best, 
that's one thing I've got control of. How can I be the best person for myself and others every day? And if I can do that, hopefully I can be of help to somebody and hopefully um, that's what leadership's about. I think it's about how we come together, how we integrate in order to work best with others. I can't wait um, for a day at some point in the future where I can bring some of the people who I've had the privilege to chat to on the podcast together in the same room because I can't I can't wait for the energy um, to happen in the room. So um, you've had so far a, a great journey and some people must have been quite influential um, in that journey. Who who were the people that you admire as leaders? Wow, it's a really, really good question. Um, maybe for me, it's not a who, maybe it's a how question. So maybe it's not who I look to, but how I look. And I think, I, I think there's two schools of um, understanding, I'd say, about leaders. So one school says, these are the guys over here, these are the gurus, these are the people you go to, go to them and they will give you the gems of knowledge and wisdom and you'll come away and do your best with them. And you probably won't do very well, but you can go back to them and read their books, go to their seminars, look at their Twitter profiles or whatever. That's one, that's, that's one model. And it's, it's you know, prevalent in lots of our systems across the world. Another model is wisdom's everywhere and it's actually how we see. So I would say that, and I often say this, and it's not a pious platitude, I really deeply mean this, Homeless people gave me more than I ever gave them because they helped me grow as a human being. And those homeless people I sat with for hours and hours, hearing stories, struggling, going to meetings, trying to help with this, that and the other. Um, They helped me grow. And whatever I am as a leader, they helped me be that person. So I think wisdom's everywhere. I think we make a big mistake by thinking it's at certain positional places and we all look up to follow the leader, I would say leadership's everywhere, wisdom's everywhere. And the question is, how can we see? So I think it's about, certainly there are great people and you're one of them. And I can give a great list of names about people like Yvonne, Maxine Craig's another one, Steve Key's my good colleague. And Thea, our chief executive, has been a tremendous support to me. There's lots of great people in our systems I could name. And actually, right across the board, there's many, many people. There's been patients and carers, et cetera, who've had big influences on me, nurses like Louise Brady, GPs like Ruth Bromley in Manchester, who've been, and so many names I could give, but I think this is something, I think the real challenge is, how do we see the stuff that's in front of us? How do we discover that stuff? Because actually that's where a lot of the wisdom and, and insight is. And I think homeless people and people in the asylum system help me see so much and help me unfold. So I would say to people, you know, there's great works and seminars and talks out there. Please use them because they will, they're will they part of the journey. But there's something in our own environments about, about how we can learn and where we can learn from. So I, I would say the question for me is, it's how we see and, and, and where we learn from. And I remember once been at a big NHS event um, and it was interesting. I was in a coffee queue. Again, sorry, coffee is obviously a dominant theme in this conversation. I was in a coffee queue. It was interesting watching people queue up for coffee and nobody engaged with the barista. Um, nobody engaged with that person serving coffee. And I thought that's really interesting. And I, I mean, I'm not saying I'm, I'm, maybe those people had loads on their plates. Maybe the heads were full of worries and that's the problem. And I've been there as well. So, but it was interesting. Here was a person serving and there was no human engagement. That person could have been a coffee machine for all it was worth, really. So I would say, and they may, may have heard a story or received something from that person which was really needed for them at that minute. So I think that openness to everything 
and to be open to be taught by whoever's in front of us. Uh, so I remember years ago hearing the phrase, all teach, all learn. And I thought, wow, it was like Rob's phrase about Leaf River Seat. When I heard somebody say that, and it was a meeting in London that Yvonne Coggle did actually, but I first heard it and I thought, wow. And I remember, I remember scribbling it down. And I thought, that means we're all teachers, we're all learners, we're all students. None of us have got the you know, the hat or the, or the magic cape. We're all in this together. We're all struggling together. And we all bring something to the party, to the feast. So sorry, I don't think I've answered your question. but oh, you have. You have answered the question. question. Have. And I think um, it's a very humbling thing to think about as well. It comes back to your point about humility. You're very, you are a very humble man, John, um, and a very special person. I, I think um, young people um, who are learning and in, in, in starting out on their new journey and older, more mature people in the system could do worse than to follow your advice, I think. Um, and, and I guess it's fairly obvious the skills that they need to, to do that, which are listening more carefully, engaging and, and those those things that you're particularly good at, really. We, we, we're coming towards the end and, and you know that I'm trying to um, explore all of these areas of leadership. It's a really messy map, actually. So as you might expect, you know, um, but who would you suggest that I spoke to? Who would you suggest that I had a conversation with? Um, well, some of the people you've already spoke to. <laughs> um, my colleague, Steve Keyes, would be a good man to speak to because Steve's an organisational psychologist. Steve has... Um, done some great work in developing systems leadership and I'm, I'm often interested in how we define things and I think again there's two models of systems leadership I think there's a model that says systems leadership is about leaders in systems working better together and of course it is and there's a model we try to evolve in leads which is systems leadership is about people so the system leadership events we have bring together people from right across the system there's a bit of a diagonal slice so we have service users in the room we have um third sector community groups faith communities nhs all in the room for two days to think what sort of system can we be and should we be and it's also externally focused so we'll often say really sorry if you've come for a badge or a certificate or a hat we haven't got any but what we offer is how do we work in a way that our city changes to address social and health inequalities? How do we serve and work with people better so that we so that our today doesn't become our tomorrow? So Steve has led a lot of that work. So I think Steve would be a really interesting person to speak to. Maxine Craig obviously would be a wonderful person who I know has been an influence on me, massive influence on me, and a massive influence on yourself, I know I'm as well. Um, and I would say frontline staff, I think there's something about we... Uh, I'm just writing an article for the National Guardian Office and it's about an experience I had and um, one of the things it taught me again and I've, I've seen it a thousand times is the expertise and the wisdom the experience is often at base, it's in those teams and I think we need to find ways to really make sure that staff are at the centre rather than just the periphery of our work and hearing their voice stories and ideas is really key to that. So I think hearing frontline staff who as we speak, are visiting families working with COVID, you know, our, our North 19 health visitors are out there supporting families and, you know, all those people, you know, social workers, et cetera. So all these people are doing this great work. And I think hearing their voices is, I mean, I've done some work recently with a social work manager um, who is a, a mental health service manager. And again, that venerable tradition of critical thinking in social work, we, we, we've got so much to learn from that. And, and it's great because she has really kept up her learning and, she tells me about all the stuff she's, she's reading and studying and things. And 
that sort of that that critical engagement with 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 work and life, I think, is so important. And I think social care does really challenges and teachers there. So I think somebody from the the social work world, but I think people from third sector, of course, as well. But I think that frontline experience is so important. And actually, some of those people are often. Um, never seen as leaders and these are people who are leading change and leading care on the ground now as we speak. Mm. Um, I, I interviewed Elaine um, Maxwell recently and she talks about the importance of wisdom. Um, I think wisdom, you've used that word quite a few times actually, I think how we use wisdom as people is a really important thing too. So, so finally John, um, I, I'm pretty sure people will want to look you up once they've listened to this. How will they find you? So my Twitter handle is John Walsh 88 at John Walsh 88. Um, I'm happy to give people my email. It's a really, really easy one at the NHS. I've been, I've been obviously I've been here for a millennia, so there's no numbers. It's just John with a H dot Walsh at NHS.net. That's wonderful. Um, and it's been a really lovely start to my day today, having um, a wonderful chat with you. Thank you so much for your time. And thank you, Anne. And thank you for the work you're doing here, because I think you're creating a space for people to discover or, or perhaps rediscover what leadership is and hearing voices. And I'm sure it's helping people across our system. So a big thank you to you. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to comment, please tweet me. I'm at Annie Coops. Or leave a comment on leadershipquest.net. We'd love to hear from you and love to hear your thoughts on the topics that we're discussing.